The Round the Campfire series featured in the Western Champion and General Advertiser for the Central Western Districts around Barkleton, Queensland, between 1892 and 1922. It is voiced and produced by Perform Australia Advanced Diploma students Annie Nogaliza, Bronte Thompson, Isaac Travers and Mickey Martinez. Tonight, and for the first night since they left the Boroman, the whole party is camped safely round the campfire. The boss has been down to the long waterhole for a bogey and is strolling back with a clean singlet around his clean burly form and a damp towel bound about his head. Milligan, the second in command, has washed in a pannikin. He's always smudgy and is hard at work splicing a stirrup leather. The doctor is putting the finishing touches to what he calls the water dogs, a tasty little doughboy he boils with the salt junk, while the others are taking a preliminary drink of tea to wash down some of the dust which has been absorbed into their system since sundown. All hands and the cook are soon pegging away at the humble fare provided until the moderate pangs of hunger are appeased. A final pint is filled with tea for a drink after the first smoke. Pipes are produced, loaded, and the wearied post-jostlers taste the real enjoyment of rest, repletion, and nail rot, which fairly closes the autumn day. Tonight, the same succession of topics of conversation follows each other. Comments on the day's work, reminiscence of persons or places suggested by what has occurred during the day, short yarns, more or less marvellous, of events that have happened in the near or long past. Some of them are getting chestnutty, and the story of the cook who plays strychnine in the flower bag has been heard thrice before. Thereupon, the boss suggests that they must do something in the way of amusing each other, by every one of them contributing an interesting narrative, otherwise a jolly good yarn to the general fund. A fine patch of mulga formed the camping place, and very few were inclined for yarning, each one declining to relate an experience feeling too, too darn, darn lazy, lazy, as the doctor expressed it. At last, Milligan came to the rescue. After a pull or two at the cuddy, he started what he called the, the story, story of, of three, three photos. photos. Nobby Burgate was an all-round speculator and his particular weakness was diamonds. One of the gems of his collection was a diamond ring. The single stone cost him 1,000 pounds. It was a superb stone, superbly set. But this ring caused him more trouble than anything else, and Nobby had only himself to blame in the matter. He was fond of seeing life as good-looking, vigorous young men in their salad days will see it. On any of his pleasure-seeking expeditions, Nobby always wore and ostentatiously displayed his famous ring. He used to carefully secure the bulk of his precious stones before setting out to have a high old time, but he could not be prevailed upon to see life without that ring. In vain did disinterested friends tell him he was only putting temptation in the way of that unfortunate class, who lived by preying upon society. He would invariably reply, I reckon that I can take care of myself. A charming and well-known barmaid called Hebe, Hello, 
had often seen in coveted Nobby Burgate's ring. I she opens fire on Nobby with the whole and rather extensive battery of my charms, physical and otherwise. But, although Nobby was fond of wine and women, he was certainly fonder of his diamonds. I tried my utmost to obtain that ring. No other would satisfy my fastidious taste. Nobby was adamant, and I determined not to be beaten. I conspired with a professional sister. Hello. And threatened to bring certain charges against Nobby. This rather staggered him, as he bore an eminently respectable name, and he did not wish to have it trailed through the mire. We imagined the game was ours. And so it was. That is... The losing game. We demanded the ring as a hush present. This proved a false move. We might have induced Nummy to part with any other of his gems, but only death could part him in that ring. The women carried out their threat, and the case, well, many Melbourneites remember it. Nobby came out of the ordeal triumphantly, and his name became a synonym for preeminent purity and respectability. He and her chum lost their liberty for a lengthened period. In the cold, dismal solitude of my prison cell, I vowed over and over and over again to have that ring. The desire for it surmounted every other wish. And I would have even led a humdrum respectable life for five years to gain absolute ownership of it. Among my numerous and ardent admirers was the most finished cracksman in the sunny southern hemisphere. G'day! He had long sighed, and sighed in vain for a monopoly of my manifold charms. I consented to grant him the monopoly for good, if he brought me that ring. He followed Nobby about all over the colonies, and though he was an artist in his line, and watched Nobby as a cat does a mouse, he failed to appropriate that ring. It was not for want of trying. He had broken into Nobby's bedroom in every province of Australia. He had searched bedrooms, high, high low, low, jack, jack and, and game. He didn't know then that on three occasions Nobby had been amused vastly by watching his ingress, artistic search and exit nor that on those occasions Nobby had been playing with his painfully precise revolver. I was sorely perplexed. Where did Burgate keep that infernal ring? At another time, years hence, in the small town of Blankmire, Nobby Burgate and a persevering lifter of valuable trifles occupied adjacent bedrooms in the local pub. Burgate was there on important business, and the other was on a similar errand. Nobby Burgate. In those five years, I had grown a truly magnificent beard, which served the dual purpose of setting off my manly beauty and of concealing my famous ring when I wanted to sleep the sleep of the just and prosperous. There is no sleep like that of those who are just and who prosper accordingly. Through a tiny hole in the ceiling, a desperate man was watching as Nobby leisurely made his night toilet, 
having divested himself of his apparel. Nobby slipped the ring off his finger, placed a peculiar clasp on it, and then inserting his hand up into his luxuriant beard, clicked something and withdrew his hand. Two men smiled a self-satisfied smile, and both had a perfect right to do so. I stood before the mirror, complacently caressing my lion-like beard. I was in excellent spirits, but unwittingly had made an unpardonable blunder. Usually, I stowed away my ring after extinguishing my light. I was so pleased with the success of a big speck in timber, which certain friends were saying would ruin me, that I forgot my usual caution in securing my ring without the aid of a tell-tale candle. That night, the expert thief entered my bedroom. I was asleep. The thief's practiced fingers deftly drew out the ring from my hiding place. But as he moved away with the booty, I awoke. Instinctively, I put my hand up into my beard. The ring was gone. I heard a stealthy footstep. Stand! I proclaimed. Or I'll blow hell out of you! Noiselessly, the finished burglar sneaked toward my bed. He aimed a terrible blow at me with the knife striking a rib and glancing aside a nasty flesh wound. I shot the stabber in the dark dead. Police Detective Mills. At the inquest, Mr. Burgay told us that the dead man was the notorious Tom Lawless, who was much inquired after. The verdict? Justifiable homicide! And one of the jury added a rider to the effect that It was a neat shot. Burgate induced a local photographer to take a portrait of the dead man. <laughs> For half a dozen poorly executed copies of the portrait, Nobby paid the photographer and landscape artist Children are speciality. A five pound note. When I returned to Melbourne, I had a capital enlarged photo taken of the best of the six copies. Then I sat for a gorgeous picture of myself. I framed the two portraits handsomely. Under my likeness, I scribed Portrait of N. Burgate, owner of the best diamond ring in Australia. Under the other, I wrote Photo taken after death of the man who tried to steal my diamond ring. Some chums even suggested that the collection of photos would be unique if I added a photo of the diamond ring and the other of the ugly scar left on my left breast. Nobby wore his ring in peace for five years and then lost it in marvellous Melbourne. A certain Brisbane lift finger had the honour, pleasure and profit of annexing that ring. The thief was a humorist of no mean order. How he managed to secure the booty was never known, but it is known that he left behind him a third photo that he added to Burgate's collection. It represented a keen-looking man, 
the beard almost as luxuriant as Birgit's own, and it too bore the burden of a legend which ran... Photo taken before death of the man who tried to steal Birgit's ring and succeeded. All is vanity. The loss made Birgate frantic. He engaged three of the best detectives in Australia, myself being one, and fairly worried the lives out of us. No clue yet! He would snap out. Why? I might as well pay a parcel of schoolboys as you fellows! In vain did he tell Detective A that Detective B had a clue and related the same to Detective C, me with the hope of increasing our emulation. Of course, Burgate paid liberally, and two of the detectives used to find an occasional clue, but they didn't find the man. One of the detectives was so disgusted with Burgate's irritable ways that he threw up the case and returned every penny he had received for expenses. That was myself. The other two, wiser in their generation, did not. Three years afterwards, Burgate died, and at the sale of his effects, I purchased the three photos. My theory was that the successful thief had disguised himself effectually, sat for his portrait, and then completed Burgate's collection. I spent hours poring over the third photo. At last, an idea struck me. I placed a piece of cardboard over it, cut so that only the ears, forehead, eyes, nose, and part of the cheeks were visible. I looked at the result of my handiwork and observed. I know that man. Nurse Smith. Detective Mills searched every prison in Australia, but his man was not confined in any of them. He resolved to cease troubling himself about the matter. Chance, however, helped the indefatigable one. During a visit to a certain lunatic asylum, he came across the thief, now a jabbering fool. He asked me, How long has that patient been here? About a year, I said. What's his name? I'll get you all the information concerning him in a brace of shakes. In a few minutes, I returned with a slip of paper. On it was written, Henry Bernard, age 44, Australian, Admitted 13th of the 4th, 1914. Thank you very much. Is this patient ever rational? I replied, very rarely. Detective Mills haunted the place thereafter and tried in diverse ways to call up some recollection in the poor deceased mind of the napless fool. It was useless. One day he brought the third photo and showed it to Bernard. Bernan said, Ha! That's me! <laughs> Detective Mills smiled and asked, Are you fond of diamonds? Yes, I had one of the grandest diamond rings you ever saw before they put me in here. Where did you get it? A vacant grin showed that the ray of light had vanished. When the detective came again next morning, he was informed that Bernan was quite incapable of answering any questions. Subsequent inquiries elucidated the fact that Bernand had become insane because a certain lady had robbed him of all he possessed and taken flight to England with another man on the very morning she was to have married Bernand. 
Detective Mills easily discovered that the lady in question was the Heeb who did time through Nobby's instrumentality. Patience is a virtue. 